This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Amen. Wonderful to hear you all singing out to the Lord. Well, we started a new series last week on the book of Esther. For such a time as this, and last week, uh, we looked at chapter one, got into chapter two a little bit, and kind of set the stage for this week. So what we saw last week is that uh, King Ahasuerus discards of his wife, Queen Vashti, and that a search is being made for a new queen, which kind of brings us to where we are today. Let's look at uh, chapter 2 today. We'll get into chapter 3 a little bit. My title is Beauty and the Beast, which will uh, it'll make sense as we get into this a little bit later. But we're going to start at chapter 2 and verse 5, and then we will move through chapter 3 and verse 6. So if you'll find chapter 2 of, of Esther, uh, we will pick it up there in the fifth verse, and follow along with me in your copy of of God's Word. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Kish had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Hegai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Hegai, keeper of the women. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants uh, to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. Now, let's skip down to verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. When the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther still did not reveal her family background or her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she always had while he raised her. During those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. When Mordecai learned of the plot, 
He reported it to Queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? When they warned him day after day and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. Father, as we dig into this text today, and we, we see the way that you are working, and as we sung earlier, you are working even when we don't see it. You're always working for your glory and for the good of your people. May we be reminded of that for our own lives, for the purposes of history, that you are always working and that your plans, your good plans for our lives and for this world will be carried out. They cannot be stopped. And so, Lord, may we see your love and your sovereignty in this text today. Equip us and strengthen us through it. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, there are some awards in life that you just don't want to win. (laughs) Every year, right after the the Oscars ceremony, uh, UCLA film graduates, two UCLA, UCLA film graduates, hold a satirical ceremony in which they give a special, special awards to the absolute worst movies of the year and the worst acting performances of the year. They're called the Golden Raspberry Awards, the, 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 the Razzies. And uh, as I look, they've been doing this since 1980, and I was looking back over the winners <laughs> of the Golden Raspberries through the, through the years, and I couldn't help but chuckle because I had seen quite a few of them. And they were absolutely deserving of the award that they, that they got. It's, it's an award that uh, if you're an actor, that you, you just don't want to, to win. Well, last week, we saw that, uh, that after King Ahasuerus uh, had, had, had discarded his wife, Queen Vashti, that he dispatches his cronies to go throughout the Persian Empire And their task is to find King Ahasuerus a a, a new wife. And so they they go and they they round up all of these beautiful girls. They were really just uh, teenagers. And they had to be young and and beautiful. And they rounded all of them up. and And the winner was going to be awarded with the prize of being wife 
to King Ahasuerus. And it was, it was an award that no wise woman would want to win. But they had no choice. They were taken from their families and put into this, this, this pagan uh, harem. And so Esther was caught up in that. Esther was taken from her father, Mordecai, and King Ahasuerus was taken with her. And he chose Esther to be his wife, to be the new queen. Uh, they were quite the odd couple. <laughs> I'm calling this, this message Beauty and the, the Beast, but I'm reminded that in the Disney classic that the beast actually had good character. That was not something that can be said for King Ahasuerus. And you know, Esther at this point in her life must have felt like things in her life, were, were, things were happening to her that were absolutely beyond her control. And she was right. They were. But what she would come to understand was that everything was within God's control. And there are times in our lives when it feels like things in our lives are spinning out of control. There are times in our lives when we feel like a little John boat out in the middle of the ocean during a fierce storm just being tossed about and we can't make sense of what's going on and it seems like things are out of control in our lives. There are times in history when it seems like that. There, there are times when it seems like the, the tectonic plates of history are shifting beneath our feet and just shaking things to the foundations. We felt like that for the last year and a half. But what we need to understand during those times are really two things. First of all, God is sovereign. God is absolutely in control even when we can't see it. And second, God loves his people. And, and God is doing something beautiful for our good and, and for his glory, even when it seems like on the surface the opposite is happening. What could be a greater example of that than the cross? On the surface, it looked like the brutal murder of an innocent man. But beneath the surface, God was doing something beautiful. That man on the cross was a son of God who was burying our sins for our salvation. And so something horrible on the surface was transformed into something beautiful because God was doing something beneath the surface. And that's what we see throughout the book of Esther. So what can we gather from this text today? I want us to see four things. First of all, God can bring good out of our messes. God can bring good out of our messes. What are, what are Esther and, Mor and Mordecai doing in Persia anyway? What are all of these Jewish exiles, this Jewish exile community, what are they doing in Persia? Well, ultimately, it was the result of sin. It was the, re the result of the sins of their ancestors. We saw it in Isaiah. God had warned them for years and years and years that if you do not repent then you're going to be judged, and God's means of judgment was going to be the Babylonian army. And, and, and Judah, uh, Jerusalem was going to be sacked, and the Jewish people were going to be taken off into exile, into Babylon, and eventually the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. 
And so this community of Jewish exiles was still there in Persia. Why were they there? It was because of the mess that people made. It was because of the sins of their ancestors that they were there. Now parents, this is really a sobering thing to think about, but the choices that we make are going to impact our children and sometimes even our grandchildren and their children. The godly choices that are made can bring blessing. The ungodly choices can put them in the position of having to live with some hard things. And some of you are in that situation today, no doubt. You're you're having to live with some hard things in your life because of ungodly choices that other people made. Somebody in your, in your family, a parent or a spouse or whatever, made the ungodly choice to be unfaithful in their marriage and break up a home. Somebody in your family made some very foolish and short-sighted and selfish decisions financially, and you're having to live with the fallout of that. Somebody in your family made the choice to get addicted to alcohol or drugs. And now you have to live with the fallout, the consequences of that. Those were messes that other people made, but you're living with the result of that. That was Esther and Mordecai. But here's what they needed to see, and here's what you need to see. We have a God that is so gracious and so powerful and so brilliant that he can take things that were meant for evil, turn them on their head, and use them for good. Joseph's life is a great example of this. You know the story of Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery by his own brothers at the age of 17. He's just a teenager. His own brothers sell him into slavery but he's picked up by a group of traders. Where are they headed? They're headed to Egypt. And in Egypt, through a long set of circumstances, Joseph was going to rise to become the right-hand man of Pharaoh himself, and Joseph was going to be used to rescue his people. That sounds very similar to the book of Esther, does it not? Just like Esther God was going to put Joseph in the position in a foreign land to be his means of rescue for his people. Later on, when Joseph's brothers come to him and, and Joseph reveals himself to them, they think he's going to kill him. They think he's going to be filled with bitterness, but no. Genesis 45 tells us this. Joseph says to them, says to his brothers, Now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Later on, when these same brothers fall down before Joseph, again in Genesis 50, it says his brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, we are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. 
Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. God planned it for good. Sometimes we find ourselves in a mess, not because of other people's choices, but because of our own. Our own sins, our own mistakes, our own blunders that we made, either because of sin or because of ignorance. And we find ourselves in some hard circumstances. And there's a word here for that as well. Because after the Persians conquered the Babylonians, King Cyrus issued a decree that the Jewish people could return to their homeland. But many of them did not return, including Mordecai's family. And Mordecai himself had not returned. Now, we don't know all of the circumstances of Mordecai's decision in that, but we do know this. Many Jewish people decided to remain in Persia because, well, life was pretty good in Persia. Life had become pretty comfortable for many of them in Persia. And Israel at this point was a backwater. Jerusalem was nothing compared to Susa. And it was going to require a lot of rebuilding in Jerusalem. And so many Jews decided to stay in Persia. But when you play by the empire's rules, don't be surprised when the empire strikes back. And what had happened here is is that Mordecai and Esther remaining in Persia were in an incredibly vulnerable position. After Esther was ripped away from her father and put into this pagan harem, Mordecai probably felt like, why didn't I leave sooner? He probably felt like his decision to to remain in Persia had come back to bite. And it had. And maybe you've made some decisions in your life that have come back to bite. Let me encourage you with something. We have a God that is so gracious that he comes to us and he can meet us right in the middle of the messes that we've made. And we have a God who is so gracious and so brilliant, he can take the mess that we've made and he can bring something beautiful out of it. So learn from your mistakes, but don't live in them. Paul says in Philippians 3, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. The second principle that we see here is this, God uses people of integrity. God uses people of integrity. There were lots of Jewish exiles in Persia. Why did God choose to use Esther and Mordecai? Well, we get hints of their character in the passage that we read today. First of all, in in Esther's case, verse 10 uh, makes it clear uh, that she was very obedient to her, her father. She did not reveal her ethnicity or family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. And, and then in verse 20, it reiterates that. It says, Esther still did not reveal her family background or her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. And then this, she obeyed Mordecai's orders as she always had while he raised her. 
And so this is a godly young girl who is obedient to the fifth commandment, to honor her father and mother. What about Mordecai's character? We, we see that he is a person of compassion and that he adopts Esther as his own. Esther is an orphan and Mordecai adopts her as his own. She's really his cousin and he, and he adopts her as his own daughter. Verse, verse, verse seven. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is Esther, because she had no father or mother. And then down to the end of that sentence, when her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. So twice in verse seven, the author indicates and, 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 and focuses in on the fact that, that Esther was an orphan. God has a special heart for orphans, for widows, for the vulnerable. And so Mordecai's adoption of her was an expression of the heart of God, God's heart of, of compassion for the orphan. And then we see uh, the tender nature of Mordecai's love for Esther again in verse 11 when it says every day Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. Wow, can you just feel the, his father's heart just, just being torn at, just knowing that his precious daughter has been taken into this pagan harem and so every day He's walking in front. Can, he just, can I just get a glimpse of her? I just want to see my girl. I just want to hear a word about how she's doing. And so this is a, a loving father, but we really see Mordecai's integrity in chapter 3 after Ahasuerus promotes this, this low-life anti-Semite Haman to be his highest official, and everybody else is bowing down to Haman like a god. Everybody but one. Mordecai refuses to bow. Now, this story has echoes of another Old Testament book, the book of Daniel and especially Daniel 3, when King Nebuchadnezzar uh, sets up a golden statue 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, puts it out there, and everybody is commanded to bow. And everybody does bow, except three Jewish exiles. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to, to bow to the king's idol. Well, the king is furious summons them to come before him. He says, look, if you're not going to bow, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be thrown into a furnace. You're going to be incinerated. And they say to him, King, we have a God who is able to deliver us from this. But here's what we want you to know. Even if he doesn't deliver us, we're not going to bow. And so Nebuchadnezzar has the furnace heated seven times hotter and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the blazing furnace. But then Nebuchadnezzar goes around and he's, he looks into the furnace. First of all, he sees that these three Jewish exiles who refuse to bow don't even have a hair of their head singed by the fire. 
They're walking around perfectly fine, but then he also sees there's a fourth man in the furnace. And, he, and, and, and Nebuchadnezzar says, the fourth man looks like a son of the gods. If you stand tall for Jesus Christ, you will face pressure in this world to bow before the gods of this world. You will face pressure in this culture to bow before this culture's values and this culture's gods. And especially in the direction that our culture is heading, if you stand for Christ, if you stand for biblical values, there will be times in your life when you are pressured to cave, to compromise, to vow, to bow. If you hold to what the Bible says about sexuality or marriage, just any other number thing, a number of things, you will feel pressure to compromise, to cave, to bow before the values and the gods of this world. Don't you bow. Don't you bow, don't you cave, don't you give an inch. And if you will maintain your integrity before the Lord, and you refuse to bow before the gods of this world, if you will stand tall for Jesus Christ, that fourth man in the furnace will be standing right there with you. Right there with you, all the way. He'll never let go. God uses people of integrity. Third, God will achieve his good purposes. God will achieve his good purposes. I've been reading the book of Job a lot, and, and you know, in Job, Job's friends, all these bad things happen to Job, and Job's friends come, and they, 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 they come, and they've got, uh, you know, they try to explain, here's why this happened, and you know, on and on and on, 30-some chapters, you know, his friends are just words, 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 here's why all this happened, all of this, and then Job has his words and all of that, but then God speaks out of the whirlwind. God knows what's really going on. And Job puts his hand over his mouth. And when he finally speaks, what does Job say? Job 42 and verses 1 and 2, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. Now this is what we see in the book of Esther. God's good purposes are going to be carried out and even when it seems like he's not at work, he is very much at work. Because God is putting the right people in the right places at the right times to carry out his good purposes. You see, God knew what Haman was going to, to, to decree for the Jewish people. God knew that Haman was going to say he wanted all the Jewish people in Persia slaughtered. God knew that. God's never surprised. He's never surprised by anything. Not in history, not in your life. God knew. And so, things begin to happen. <laughs> the king just happens to make this impulsive decision to 
depose his wife, the queen, and to seek a new queen. Esther just happens to be there as this search is being carried out. And Esther just happens to be the one that he is smitten with. This Jewish exile girl just happens to be the one that is chosen as queen. Mordecai just happens to be there at the king's gate at the very time when these two members of Ahasuerus' court are plotting an assassination against him. He just happens to be there at that moment so he overhears what they're saying so that he can tell Esther and Esther can tell the king. And that means that and what Ahasuerus learns is that he can trust Esther and Mordecai. That's going to be incredibly important as this story plays out. We see the story of Joseph that we talked about earlier. Joseph just happens to be sold by his brothers to a group of traders that are on their way to Egypt, where he just happens to be purchased by Pontifer, one of Pharaoh's leading officials, where he just happens to eventually be promoted to the point that he becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man himself and is put in a position to save countless numbers of people. A lot of stuff just happens when God is involved. (laughs) He will achieve his good purposes and nothing and no one can stop him. The fourth principle is what we saw last week and we see it again here. The story points to the Savior The story points to the Savior. Let's look at Haman's plot here against the Jews in chapter 3 and verses 5 and 6. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. Now, verse 1 tells us that uh, he was the son of, uh, of an Agagite, which means that Haman was an Amalekite. He was almost certainly um, anti-Semitic to begin with. So when he hears that this one guy is refusing to bow before him, he's already furious. But then when he hears that this one guy is a Jew, he's beside himself with rage. And Haman says, hey, it's not enough to get rid of this one Jew. Let's get rid of all the Jews throughout Persia. Let's annihilate them. The 20th and 21st centuries have been an age of genocide. Beginning with the Armenians and Turkey during World War I. And then in the 1930s, Joseph Stalin murdered 7 million Ukrainians through a forced starvation. More recently, in the early 1990s, in Bosnia and Rwanda, right now, as we speak, the brutal Chinese government is doing the same thing with a Muslim people group in their own country, the Uyghurs, right now. But the most famous genocide is the Holocaust that happened 
and the Second World War. Adolf Hitler had already decided to murder every single Jew in Europe. And on January 20th, 1942, 15 high-ranking Nazi officials met in a beautiful lakeside villa in the Berlin suburb of Wannsee. They called it the Wannsee Conference. And they were there to discuss this, the final solution of the Jewish question. They were essentially gathered around that table. And by the way, over, of the 15 men who were gathered around that table, over half of them held doctorates from German universities. And their purpose in gathering around the table that day in this beautiful lakeside villa was to essentially plot out the logistics. How do we murder 11 million people? And within 90 minutes, they had it worked out. They did not succeed, although they murdered more than half of them. But from the ashes of the Holocaust, God brought forth the nation of Israel. And if you do not see his hand in that, you are blind. Haman was the Hitler of his day. He wanted a genocide against the Jewish people. God was not going to let that happen because he had a special plan for the Jewish people because through that people, he was going to bless all peoples. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God promises to Abraham, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And here it is. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. How is that going to happen? Jesus. Jesus. Paul says in, in Romans chapter 9, speaking of the Jewish people, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs. And from them by physical descent came the Christ who is God over all. So think about it. In rescuing the Jewish people, of Susa, God is setting up what is going to happen in Bethlehem, in the birth of the Savior. And through what happens in Bethlehem, God is setting up what was going to one day happen in Jerusalem, as Christ died for our sins and rose again. Christ died and rose for his bride, the church. And as we saw last week, the church is the bride of Christ. And as we saw last week, the contrast between the way King Ahasuerus treated his bride, Queen Vashti, and how Christ treats his bride, the church. We saw that King Ahasuerus summoned his bride to a banquet in order to exploit her. King Jesus will one day summon his bride, the church, to a banquet, the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Not to exploit us, but to lavish his love and grace and mercy upon us. And think about this. In chapter 2, Ahasuerus is seeking a new bride. 
What, were, what, were his, what was his criteria for his new bride? She had to be young and beautiful. That was his motivation. That was the criteria. Find me young, beautiful women. What motivated King Jesus to choose us as his bride? Was it because of our beauty? Was it because of our moral purity? It was just the opposite. We were all engaged in the ugliest rebellion against God. All of us were, were, were scarred by the ugliness of sin. But King Jesus pursued us to be his bride out of love, out of just sheer grace. And think about this. Although she was already beautiful, Esther has to go through 12 months of beauty treatments to measure up to the king's standard of beauty. It was all about meeting his standard of beauty. But think about the gospel. King Jesus empties himself, leaves the glory of heaven to come and to rescue us, to be born as a little baby and to live a life of sacrifice and service where he had no place to lay his head and eventually a cross would be laid on his back. Why? It was in order to make us beautiful. And one day when he returns, we will receive glorified bodies just like his. First John 3, 2 says that when he comes, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready to meet Jesus? Let's pray together. If you're here today, or if you're watching this video today or at any point in the future, and you were not certain that you were ready to meet King Jesus, I want to invite you right now to turn to him, to repent of your sins and to believe in him, to trust in him, to put your life in the hands of this king of love. Right now, if you'll say, Lord, I am a sinner, I do not deserve your salvation, but I believe that you died for my sins, I believe that you rose from the dead, and right now, I'm turning from, from living for sin and self, and I'm turning to you, and I'm placing my trust in you. I'm placing my trust in what you have done for me, and dying for my sins and rising from the dead. I give you my life, and I, I ask you to come into my life and take control as my Savior and Lord and King. He will do that. He will not turn you away. What's God saying to you today as a believer? Is there an area of your life that is, you're holding back from him? That you need to surrender to him today? Father, we pray that as we look forward to the glorious day 
of your return that we will live every day as if it's going to be that day. Father, I pray for anyone who needs to know Christ as Lord and Savior, that you would do a work of grace in their hearts and that they would turn to you and trust you today. Father, I pray for every believer who is here that we would be completely yielded to you, that that if there are things in our lives, um, unconfessed sin, uh, things that need to be restored, relationships or unconfessed sin or habitual sin or whatever that needs to be laid down and surrendered, Lord, deal with us right now that nothing would, would hinder our intimacy with you. Father, I pray for people who just needed a word of encouragement today. Maybe who feel like just things are just out of control in life. Lord, may you impart faith and hope to know that you are working. That you never stop working. And that you will take whatever that is, whether it's a mess that someone else made or a mess that we've made, and that you can bring forth beautiful things from that. Lord, would you give hope today? Would you give encouragement today? We thank you for the promises of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.